0: Good to see everyone this morning, especially some guests, and that welcome. My name is Michael. I am uh, one of the primary teachers here at uh, Renew. As Steve had mentioned, we're actually going to start something new today. This new two ways, basically. One is that um, it's a new series. But second, it's probably it's one of the few series we actually do, because here at Renew, what we typically do is we just go through one book of the Bible at a time, sort of verse by verse. That's my favorite way to teach. Um, but occasionally... Um, We see need to maybe uh, take a break from that, if you will, and focus on maybe a topic. When I was in seminary, we learned both bibliology, which is where you're studying the biblical text, and then we learned something called systematic theology, which is where you take a bunch of texts and you sort of bring them together to form your theology. And so what we're going to look at today is sort of in that vein. It's going to be a 10-week series. Um, I'm referring to it as Defending Our Faith, and it's basically an apologetics series. Anybody know what the word apologetics means? We've talked about this before, one of the neat things, we we should all learn Greek, because one of the great things you can do with Greek is you can make your own words up. Paul did that oftentimes. just take two words, stick them together and comes up with a new word, and so apologetics comes from a Greek word that's two words stuck together. One of them is apo, and it actually means um, to be alongside, okay, or to bring something away from something. Logia is speech, and so it's the idea of speaking away something. Now that's kind of funky or weird for us to think of, but it was used to refer to defending something. If you were accused of something, you could give a defense. So apologetics is just a fancy word for giving a defense. And so we're going to talk about that in these next ten weeks. Now the other thing that's going to make this series a little unique is we're going to do something a little bit different in that this series is actually focused first and primarily on our kids. Your responsibility as parents is to raise your kids. And I've always seen my responsibility as one way to equip you and the kids, your family, with the tools that you need to do what you need to do to help them. And so I'm going to do it a little bit differently in that this is going to be primarily focused on the kids. I'm going to try to engage you kids a little bit more. And I like interaction. So I'll ask you to maybe answer questions and to help out and all that. And you don't have to if you feel uncomfortable, but I'm going to ask for your participation and I'm going to try to basically encourage you then to go home and engage your parents. Now, that doesn't mean we're going to dumb things down here. So there's going to be things in here that are a little tough and mom and dad might have to explain them to the kids. So I'm hoping the parents aren't going to be bored. I'm hoping the kids will be excited. And what I'd love to see happen is that you go home with this. It sparks conversation. Um... You're going to be able to go online, a lot of the times, you know, I post my notes online all the time, the actual notes I actually teach from, and you'll be able to go online and I won't cover all of this here, but you'll be able to go online and grab the specific notes and see other things in them that you can go through maybe over the course of the week with the kids. Now, in addition to that, um, I'm going to pass out some books here. What these are, these are note-taking guides. Again, something we don't typically do. Each... Kid can have one. The adults, um, if you absolutely positively need one, you can. They're primarily for the kids um, to be able to take notes and follow along. But because they follow my notes, the parents can go online and get the full set of notes, and then, like I said, use this to maybe um, do what you need to. So if there's, if you need more in the back, go ahead and pass these back there. And now, guys, what you'll have to do with this is bring them back every week, okay? Because you'll be keeping notes in them on a regular basis. If you need pens, I also have pens up here, um, all different colors. If you need one of those. All right. I'll wait till those kind of get passed out. You need some more, Steve? Or Randy? Got a couple more here if you need them. You know what? By the way, Dustin put these together for us. He was up at 3 a.m. in the morning uh, two nights ago working on it. He took care of it all like Kinko's and all that. So when you see Dustin, give him a big thanks for doing that. If you need more, we're, we're up here. So what we're basically looking at here as we look at this particular series is defending what we believe. It's how we go about defending our faith. It refers to giving a reply when somebody asks or if somebody accuses us to be able to defend what we believe. This word here that we talked about before is actually used in the New Testament to refer to to defending the gospel. I want you to turn with me to Philippians chapter 1. So turn with me to Philippians chapter 1. You're going to get your exercise. Normally when we're we're teaching, we're in a particular book, and so you don't have to move around a lot. Your fingers are going to get some exercise, because when we go through a series like this, we have to look at a lot of verses and bring those verses together. So you guys are going to get uh, exercise in your fingers here as you flip around. Philippians chapter 1, verse 7, Paul says this. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you because I have you in my heart since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel you are partakers of grace with me. Notice he mentions there defending the gospel, the defense of the gospel. Paul uses this word here. I want you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 3 with me. 1 Peter chapter 3. And this is going to be a key passage for us. Um, some of you maybe have a regular exercise of memorizing verses of Scripture. Um, this would be a great one to memorize for our series here. It's 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. Peter says this. We'll start in... Um, We'll start actually in verse 13. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, (coughs) you are blessed. (coughs) Excuse me. And do not fear their intimidation, and do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense, that's the word, defense, to everyone who asks you to give account of the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. So Peter is challenging his readers there to always be ready to give a defense for the hope that's within them. In other words, when they come across individuals that need to know why they're hopeful or why they can look to the future with hope... Or why they believe in the gospel, Peter says you need to be ready to be able to give them an answer, to make a defense for what you believe. Now the reason this is so critical is because we live in a world today that is becoming much more antagonistic towards what we believe. You know, guys, when I was a a kid, when I was your age, um, almost all the kids that I went to, I went to a public school, and almost all the kids that I went to school with went to my church, a big Catholic church in the area. And so it wasn't unusual How many of your friends, if you're in public school, how many of your friends do you know that actively go to church? That number is getting smaller and smaller. So it's a different world today. And the world is becoming a little more hostile towards the things that we believe and to what we say and not quite as open. And so, in some respects, we're being called on to defend what we believe. And we'll look at some of that a little bit today. But there's three things that we're going to focus on. And you'll see that it's the same outline for every single week. Not the same subject matter, but the same outline. We have to know a couple of things, or a few things actually. We first off have to know what the challenge is to what we believe. In other words, we kind of need to know what the world is saying about what we believe, how they feel about it. When we say we believe Jesus is the only way and the world disagrees with that, we need to kind of understand that they disagree with that, right? So we need to know what they, what they believe, what the challenge is. We also then need to know the truth, don't we? We need to know what we believe and then why we believe it. So we need to know the truth. And then lastly, we we now need to know how to respond, how to talk to them. And so every week, you'll notice in your book, we follow the same outline. We're going to first look at the challenge. We have to know the challenge. Next thing we need to do is to know the truth And then lastly, know how to respond. And so every week what we're going to do is we're going to talk about the world thinks this about what we believe on a particular subject. And we're going to have a different subject for the next nine weeks. Okay? And so the first thing we'll do is say, what does the world think about this? The next thing we'll do is we'll look at the Word of God to say, what does the Word of God say? What is the truth about that subject? And then... We're going to talk about how we might respond. How do we talk to the world about that? And there's some examples, and there's some things that you can do then with your own parents and with each other, ask questions and try to figure out how to respond, okay? So every week we're going to look at knowing the challenge, knowing the truth, and knowing how to respond. And that'll be right in your booklets there. We're going to kind of follow that same outline today, but today's not really a topic. Next week is when the topics start. That's when the fun starts. We're going to look at just this idea of defending our faith now. So, the first thing we have to do is know the challenge, all right? When it comes to defending our faith, there are two fronts. You guys know that um, some of you have probably studied things like, I don't know, maybe some of you, World War II or maybe the Revo- We were watching uh, Les Miserables last night and it's, uh, you know, the French Revolution. In war, there's fronts that you have to fight on, meaning you might have enemies here that you have to f- confront and over here. So, in some respects, there are two fronts that we have to deal with. and One of them is the world. Okay, So the first front is the world. The world is and has always been hostile towards the truth. Do you believe that with me? Do you think the world loves the things that Christians stand for? Not always. Go back to Genesis chapter 3 with me. I'm going to ask a couple of questions here, but Genesis chapter 3. Because the conflict that we have with the world started all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, right after God had created Adam and Eve... Almost immediately there was opposition to the truth, opposition to what God had said. You guys all know the story, Genesis chapter 3, I'm going to read five verses and i got some questions for you. Chapter 3, I'm sorry, chapter 3 verse um, 1 through 5. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made, and he said to the woman, Indeed has God said, You shall not eat from the tree of the garden. The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we can eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, Surely you will not die, for God knows that the day you eat, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And you know what happened. Eve decided to listen and took a bite of the fruit and sinned. And we all sort of pay the price for Adam and Eve's sin, Right? I got three questions for you. Satan or the serpent here says three things. What's the first thing that he says in this? Just go back to your Bible right there, look at verse one. What's the first thing? One of you kids, help me out here. What's the first thing that that the serpent says or does? Anybody want to help me out? I'm just going to be like pulling teeth, but we're going to get you used to talking back. I don't want to do all the talking this morning. Yeah. What's the? Did God actually say? Yeah. Did God actually say? Guess what? we being a smarty. You get a smarty. <laughs> All right. The first thing he said is, Really? As God said, so he questions God's word. Did he really say that? How many times have you guys ever heard, Does the Bible really say that? Or is that really what God says? Is God really like that? So the first thing he does is he questions God. What's the second thing? Somebody help me out here. What's the second thing that the serpent says? It's in verse 4. Surely you will not Yeah. Surely you will not die. So the second thing that he does is he rejects it. Oh, come on. God might have said it, but that's not really true. The world likes to do that. Oh, sure, we know the Bible says that, but that's not really true. How do we know what truth is? One of the things we're going to look at is how we determine truth. What's the third thing he says there? That's actually in verse 5. So one last thing that he says there. Which one of you kids wants to help me out with that one? Yeah, basically what he what he says here is, well, God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like him. You'll know good and evil. What he does there is he doesn't reject what God says. He basically calls God a deceiver. God's lying. He doesn't want you to be like him. See, if you, you do this, you'll be just as smart as God is. You'll know things too. He's deceiving you. He wants to keep it to himself. So, we see that already in the beginning. Hey, Mel. Mel. we see already in the very beginning challenges come the world does not like the truth does not like the word of God you know what's interesting about that is we see that throughout history you guys remember the story of Jezebel Jezebel is from the Old Testament and there was a time where she took and started killing God's prophets because she didn't she was from Israel she was married to the king and she didn't like what the prophets were saying because they were preaching God's word and so she starts to kill them. And Elijah has to take the prophets and he goes and he hides them in caves in groups of 50 to protect them because people didn't like what they were saying. Any of you kids know why they killed Jesus? There's a lot of answers, but there's one very specific answer. Anybody, anybody know why they killed Jesus? Yeah. Oh, Jesus here. <laughs> Alright, that's like a doubly smart so she gets two of them because she's really smart. It's because they didn't like what Jesus was saying. Let me read this to you real quickly here. Jesus, when he was confronted by the Jews, said, I showed you many good works from the Father for which of them are you stoning me? In other words, I showed you all these things from the Father. Why are you stoning me? And their response is, we don't stone you for your good works, but for blasphemy, saying something that's untrue, but specifically about God. They said, For a good work we don't stone you, but for blasphemy because you, being like, or being a man, you make yourself out to God. In other words, they didn't like the fact that Jesus was saying, I'm the Son of God. He was speaking the truth. And so the Jews even admitted, We don't like what you're saying. We don't like the truth that you speak. It's blasphemy. It's wrong. And so, Ultimately, that's why they crucified Christ. Now, we know that the reason Christ was crucified was to pay the penalty for our sin, right? But the Jews persecuted and prosecuted, and then ultimately put him on the cross because they didn't like him speaking the truth. Paul also, and you can look on this on your own, you'll notice in your book, we put all the Bible verses that we're going through in a list in case you need them. But this is from Acts chapter 9. In Acts chapter 23, you can go there and you can look at the Paul's story. Paul's ministry, he was constantly targeted by the Jews around him and by other people who didn't like what he had to say. At the very beginning of his ministry, he was run out of town. And at the end, he was ultimately put to death and beheaded because people didn't like Paul running around preaching the truth. So the world is getting more and more hostile. It was true back then. It's true today. Many nations today, how many of you have heard uh, that the United States was once founded as a Christian nation? Okay? You may or may not learn that. There's really no such thing as a Christian nation per se, but our our nation was founded on biblical principles. Many of the first settlers that came here came here to flee religious persecution. They also came for business purposes. They came to, to start a new life, but many of them came because of religious persecution back home. Some actually came um, once the nation began to have a sort of its a, a seating going. There were many missionaries that came here to, to, to serve as missionaries to the Indians, and so there was a, a, a neat religious heritage, a Christian heritage to our founding of our nation. Many of our, most of our schools, most of our hospitals, were all started by churches and denominations. In fact, your first um, government halls and churches where they did their government business were at the churches can we bring a bible to school today and open it up and study some schools want to take that out of our hands right sometimes Christian religious clubs on campus get banned it's getting more difficult and more difficult many of the institutions like our governments our courts our schools that all had great religious Christian principles you can go to Washington and you can go look at a lot of the monuments and you know where it's stamped on many of them bible verses and there are people now calling to have those removed it's offensive So it's getting more difficult for us. You kids live in a different time than I did, meaning it's getting more difficult for you. The world doesn't like what we have to say and what we like to do. Now, there shouldn't really be a shock because Jesus told us that that would happen. I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 10 with me. Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10, Jesus warned his disciples of something. His disciples are you and I, those that follow Jesus. So Matthew chapter 10, starting at verse 16, Jesus said this, Behold, I send you out as sheep into the midst of wolves. The wolves he's talking about there is just the world. He's saying, I'm going to send you out like sheep, out among wolves. That's a pretty interesting word picture, isn't it? When you think about what, ha- what happens when wolves are around sheep. Sheep kind of get devoured, don't they? It's a dangerous place. And so Jesus is saying, I'm going to to send you out into a dangerous place, the world. He said, you need to be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves, but beware of men, for they will hand you over to the courts, discourage you in the synagogues, and you will even be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they hand you over, do not worry about how or what you are to say, for it will be given to you in that hour what you are to say. For it is not for you to speak, but it is the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. He says, "Brother will betray brother, and to death; and father his child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. You will be hated by all because of my name. But it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. But whoever they persecute, or I'm sorry, but whenever they persecute you in one city, flee to the next." For I say to you, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. Basically, what Jesus was doing was just telling his disciples, it's a dangerous place out there because they won't like what you have to say. They won't like the beliefs that you have. And in some respects, we've been fortunate here in the United States because it's been fairly easy for us as Christians because of our Christian heritage. But it's getting a little bit more difficult. How many of you heard about the, the guy that bakes cakes for people? And there was a a couple, a a man and another man, that came in and wanted him to make a cake for their wedding. And he said, I I can't do that. I don't believe that two men should marry each other. And so they sued him. And the government found him guilty, basically, and fined him. Well, with this next session of the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court's going to be deciding whether or not that's right or wrong. Does this man have the right to not bake a cake for something he doesn't believe in? And so sometime in the next few months we'll hear whether or not that Baker has the right to do that. And if the if our court, Supreme Court says he doesn't, that's going to say a lot about what we can and cannot do as Christians. Can we live out our faith properly without the world not just hating us for it, but trying to do something about it. And so it's getting more and more difficult. And I and I don't want that to be a, a bummer or downer for you, but that's what we have to understand. That we live in a, a tough place. So Jesus warned us about it. So that's that's one front we have is what the world does. Okay? we should be in the world, meaning we should make friends with unsaved people and we should talk to them and interact with them because they need Jesus. But it means that they're not always going to be real happy with us and not real open to what we have to say and do. We look strange to them sometimes, guys. Now, there's another front, okay, and it's a little more disturbing to me because it has to do with the church. So on the one part is the world isn't going to be happy with what we have to say, but what's interesting is the church is being impacted by the world where... We have to deal with false teaching inside the church sometimes now, more than ever. Meaning that even in the church, they're becoming more like the world in many respects. And so we're going to have to defend what we believe sometimes even with other Christians. Which means sometimes you kids will have friends that are Christians or claim to be Christians and they reject some of what you believe is true. We see that happening in the church today where... We have churches, even evangelical churches, which means they'd be in the same vein as we are here. There are some churches, like I grew up Catholic, that wouldn't be considered um, evangelical. You can have Catholics that are saved, that believe in Jesus in terms of relationship, but there are many Catholics who are not saved because they believe that salvation comes through some other means. So we wouldn't call them evangelical, but within our circle here where we believe pretty much all the same things, there are now churches that believe that gay marriage is okay that allow those individuals to be in leadership positions. And they think that we're narrow-minded or that we just don't love people because how can we reject that? And so even within the church now... Let me ask you kids another question here. Have you ever had a friend ask what you believe? Have you ever had a friend that asked you... Kimberly, my daughter, uh, this summer worked at the at the pool as a lifeguard and then worked as a concessions person... Her boss was an atheist. And it led to some interesting conversations. Okay, Within that group, wasn't there one or two that called themselves a Christian? But even within that, there were some things that her friend had said that doesn't line up with the scriptures. She didn't know if they were true or not. And so Kimberly was in an o- had an opportunity then to share or defend those truths. So even within the church, we have to sometimes defend ourselves. But there's other times where we have within the church wolves who deliberately teach things that are run contrary to the word of God. It's called false teaching. And we have to defend that, and sometimes we have to confront it. When I was at uh, my home church shortly before going to seminary, we had a gentleman who he was one of our leaders, one of our elders, and he began to teach that Jesus wasn't going to return that there would be no rapture, Jesus Christ would not return, and he began to teach that within the church, and some people in the church began to follow him. He was destroying their faith. We had to confront him. And in doing so, when I would sit down with this man, I'd have to defend what the Bible said and help him to understand why what he was teaching was not biblical. So we have these two fronts. We have the world that we're constantly dealing with, and then we have sometimes within the church. And to be real honest, it's becoming more and more popular Within the church. In other words, we see it more and more. Let me give you a couple of real quick things. You know, a lot of evangelical churches today no longer believe that the Genesis account of creation. Or that the flood was universal, meaning the whole world. Many of them are rejecting the story of Babel. And part of it is because they've accepted evolution as the primary means for God to work, they call it theistic evolution. That God used evolution and we've been around for millions and millions of years. There was no real Adam and Eve. There are evangelical churches today like ours that are rejecting that. They say it's unimportant. Um, we have a lot of mysticism in the church. you know what mysticism is, guys? It's um, a lot of stuff where you sort of have to get in touch with your inner self and stuff like that. And you, there's different practices you do, religious things that make you more like God. And um, there's a lot of that happening in the church today. A lot of popular books. And it's disguised as spiritual things. I recently, I think there's a gentleman I work with or meet with on Tuesday mornings. And he's really been fond of this, this gentleman. And he's been listening to a lot of his podcasts. And he said, I want you to look at his stuff. I, I think it's really good stuff, but I'd like you to look at it. And um, tell me what you think. So I began to do some research, spent about three hours researching it. And the guy that he's been listening to is a polytheist. <laughs> Christian guy, he pastors a fairly large, well-known church. He's written four books that are very popular. But he's ultimately a polytheist. Believes in multiple gods. They're just smaller gods, but they're gods nonetheless. And there's some other things. And so I had to respond to my friend. I'm like, wow, after doing about three hours of research, this guy's not all there. He's an open theist. And what I mean by that is, God doesn't know the future. Do you ever wonder about that guy? Does God know everything? There's a whole group of theologians now called open theists and say no God really doesn't know the future and God is constantly having to change his plan because we keep screwing his plan up so he kind of has to keep changing because he doesn't know what we're doing so we have to confront it within the church alright so those are the two primary areas that we have to learn to defend our faith against the church unfortunately in some respects and the world alright now that's the challenge guys let's go on to knowing the truth okay In order to defend what we believe, we have to know the truth, don't we? We have to know why we believe what we believe. So, let me ask you this, guys. When it comes to moral and spiritual truth, when it comes to things about God and about a relationship with Him and about eternal life and about moral values, is it right to lie, is it not right to lie? How we behave. There's really only one source that we can trust that's completely true and has no errors in it. What is that? all right. Tell you what. All right. Got to them, right? It was kind of cute. I saw Smarties for Smarties. I thought that was kind of cute. Kind of... You guys know me. I don't do gimmicks usually. So this is just, I don't normally hand out candy. I saw a guy at Stanford University in his in his um, college courses where he teaches programming. He brings in a huge bag of chocolate. And that's the way he teaches. Every time he asks a question, the college students, he throws them candy bars in this huge auditorium of 1,000 people. He's throwing the stuff, you know, and I thought, okay, that's gimmicky. We don't do it a whole lot here because I'm not into the gimmicks. You guys know that, but um, but I thought it was cute. So go ahead and pass that back. I don't know where, who goes to. So now, if uh, if you adults kind of chime in. I'll throw you a... Well, you know what? (laughs) Yeah. There's some good stuff. There's some good stuff there. We're just doing... We might be able to do that. You know, I told... I I was thinking Dustin was supposed to be here this morning. He he had to help serve a friend of his who had a stroke recently. So Dustin had to jump out this morning. And I was going to say, you know, if Dustin were here, we'd be giving out $1 bills. But he's not here, so we're, we're stuck with candy. So... When it comes to moral and spiritual truth, there's only one source we have, guys. It's the Bible. Turn with me to John chapter 17. John chapter 17. Let's look at this. Okay? The Gospel of John, chapter 17, verse 17. Jesus was praying for his disciples. Okay, this is before he gets taken to the cross. But he had a prayer for his disciples. John chapter 17, verse 17. He says this. He, he's talking to God now. And he says, Sanctify them. That means set them apart. Make them holy. Okay? Sanctify them in the truth. And then he says what? What does he say? Your word is truth. I'm going to toss this back. Ready? Your word is truth. What we have here, guys, is the truth. Okay? When Satan said, really? Did God say that? Come on. He was challenging this. What we have here is truth, which means we can trust it. Look at Second Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. This is another one of those great Bible memory verses. Second Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Paul wrote this, all scripture, that's our Bible, is inspired by God. That word, remember, the, we love Greek words, they say a lot. The actual word there is God breathed. It's as if God just opens his mouth and breathes, and that's his word. So what we have here, what's written here, came right from God's mouth, It's the best way to say that, okay? So it says all scripture is God breathed, or inspired by God, and it's profitable, which means it's valuable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. I had a seminary professor one time that said it this way. He like he loved hand motions. I'd never been into hand motions when they make us sing songs and do hand motions at conferences. I always, I'm too shy for that, right? Anyway, he said um, that what Paul is saying here is that it teaches us what's right, how to get right, and ultimately how to stay right. So basically, you go like this: tells us what's right what's wrong, how to get right, and how to stay right. He loved those hand motions. You know, it tells us what's right, what's wrong, how to get right, and how to stay right. I don't know if that helps you remember it or not, but for some reason, 20-some years after seminary, I still remember that. So maybe the hand motions are good, right? So the Word of God is breathed right from God's mouth, which is why we can trust it. Can we trust God? Does God ever lie? No. Everything He said, everything He's written is true and it's good for us because it teaches us what's right, what's wrong, how to get right, and ultimately how to stay right. Now look at the same book, chapter 2, verse 15. 2 Timothy, chapter 2, verse 15. 2 Timothy, chapter 2, verse 15. Because of this, because God's word is truth and because it, it is trusted, it's, it's able to help us to be right before God, we should handle it a certain way. Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.15, Be diligent, means work hard, to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. You know what that means? That simply means that because God has breathed out this word, because what we have here is the actual word of God, we should respect it and treat it that way. There's a lot of people today that will say, well, it's really, you know, there's some good stuff in here. And they'll say, well, you know, God didn't really mean that. Does that sound like somebody? Oh, it really doesn't mean that. Let me tell you what it means. There was an article I read recently about, it was a woman who she was on staff with Campus Who Saved for Christ. It was a hard article to read because it's a woman who's attracted to other women. But she got saved. God didn't immediately take away that attraction, but she knew it was wrong. She ended up; she's married, has a a husband, um, leads a, a, a ministry on campus just as part of a women's leader. But she said, "You know what? The issue isn't what my feelings tell me, because she's still attracted to women, and we would struggle with that, right?" But she said, "But it's a sin, so I will not do it. I'm going to honor." God in what I do because God's word says this well what's interesting is that she met a bunch of other Christians on campus who were attracted to other women and they gave her some material to try to convince her that she was misunderstanding the Bible and as she read through it one of the things that became abundantly clear she said as I read through that I began to see how they were twisting the scriptures because when I read the scriptures it made it clear that that is not a lifestyle God is honored by so I will not do it regardless of how I feel I will not do it and she said they were twisting and perverting the scriptures to justify what they were doing. We can't do that, because Paul tells Peter here, or Paul tells Timothy here, you need to accurately handle God's word. Treat it appropriately. Honor it with respect. You can do this on your own, but if you go read Psalm 119, it's one of the longest psalms. But every part of that Psalm is about God's Word. You can just read that on your own. See how David desires to be in the word and how he refer, you know, respects the word and how he loves the word. It's a great passage. You'll see it written in your notes there. The, the, the um, Just Psalm 119. A great, great path, um, psalm to go through. Now, when it comes to other issues, guys, meaning non-moral things like science and history, we've got all kinds of sources, don't we? Right? Right? The Bible not the only source that tell us about history and, and archaeology and other things, right? Are those sources as trustworthy as the Bible? Meaning, can we trust what the scientists always say simply because they say it? Now, why is that? Any of you kids know why that is? Does it change ever? <laughs> you know, what's really interesting, when I was a kid, the smallest things that existed were atoms. How many of you guys are taught, did any of you kids taught that today? No, they know that there's something much smaller than atoms now. I was also told that there were only so many planets in our solar system. How many of you guys remember that? Is Pluto a planet? Anybody hear about that in school? You guys talk about that? You know, it's not a planet. Now it is a planet. You no, know it's not a planet. Have they found other planets outside of our solar system? Yeah. Almost weekly, they're finding other planets outside. We were taught when I was growing up that our solar system was the only solar system in the whole entire universe. You know that the age of the universe, um, you guys know me, I'm, a, I'm a, what do I call a young, young earth creationist. I believe the world was created less than probably six to 8,000 years ago and that God did it in six days. When I was growing up, almost every other month, the age of the universe by scientific standards changed. It went from 4 billion to 8 billion to 13 billion to 17.5 billion back to 7 billion. Always changing because science always changes because it's just based on our observation. So when you think about that, we can't trust completely those things but we can trust the Bible right now when the Bible speaks on things like science and history we know we can trust those things we know that those things are true so we have these two two sources of truth but the only one that is completely 100% reliable without error is the Bible now here's here's the kicker on that we can't really expect the unsaved world to accept that do you know that? We cannot expect the unsaved world to just accept this as God's word. You know, you guys have heard the term millennial. What are millennials? Anybody know? Every generation is going to give it a, you know, Gen X and Gen Y. Well, a group of younger, there's a younger generation right now. It's probably for some of you the generation right before you. Um, are called Millennials within that group only about and this is of Christian Millennials Millennials that call themselves Christians only about 37% believe that this is the word of God the rest reject it no it's not okay now again question for you kids do any of you guys know why it's so hard for your unsaved friends to just say yes that's the word of God I believe it any of you know why that is why yeah Katie Yeah, a lot of them have been taught something different. There's some very specific reasons in the Bible that we're told why it's so hard. And I'm going to say something here that maybe some of the parents might at first go, What? It's not their fault. Now, that's not 100% true. Okay? But there's some reasons why. I want you to look at these with me. I'm just going to read these to you. They're in your notes, but I don't want you to have to, because we're going to go through them kind of fast. One reason is because they're deceived. Revelation chapter 12, verse 9 says this. Just listen. The serpent of old, that's Satan. The serpent of old is called the devil and Satan. He deceives the world. Well, one reason why the world doesn't accept this is because they've been deceived by Satan. Remember Eve in the garden? You know, she knew what God's word was. God said this. She was even able to repeat it back to Satan, wasn't she? But he's like, really? God can't say that. And what happened to Eve? At some point she probably went, hmm. He makes a good point. Do you remember what Eve says to Adam or to God? I'm sorry, when when God confronts the two of them. I'm sorry, what Adam says. The woman deceived me. I did it because she deceived me. She tricked me. Well, to be real frank, guys, the world around us, they're tricked. They're deceived. They've been told it's not the word of God. They've been told a lot of other things. There's another reason. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4 says this. In whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. So not only are they deceived, but they're blinded. They have these blinders on their eyes. You know what that is, guys, right? You know why they put little blinders on the sides of horses? Melanie might know this. Why do they do that with horses? Oh my gosh, look at that. So they can't see everything. Right? Well, think of that. That's what the enemy has done. To the world around us, it's put blinders on their eyes so they can't see. So you can talk sometimes to your unsaved friends, and it'll be like deer in the headlights. It doesn't make sense to them. I had a girl that I I hung out with in, in high school, a good friend of mine, and she went to the same Catholic church I did. I went away to college, I got saved, and I came back. She went away to college and became an atheist. And I remember one of the first conversations we had. She just kept saying, I don't get it. I don't understand it. It makes sense to me. I don't know why God would do that. Blinders. Satan had covered up her eyes, made it so that she couldn't really see. There's a third reason. It comes from Romans chapter 1, verse 21. Paul wrote this. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became, and here's the key word, futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. You know what that means? Their thinking's all screwed up now. Their thinking is futile or empty. They can't reason all the time. And it's amazing, I think, I meet these people that are these amazing scientists that get into the body and tell you all this stuff about the body and they're so intelligent and they're so smart. And when it comes to spiritual things, they drop the ball. So they're so smart. It's not that they're not intelligent, but when it comes to spiritual things, it doesn't, doesn't process. It doesn't make sense. They're all screwed up in their thinking. Their thinking is empty. There's a fourth reason Romans chapter 1 verse 28 says this and just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer God gave them over to a depraved mind. So the fourth reason is that their minds are depraved which basically again gets at that idea that it, they just they can't think right and they prefer to think other things. Meaning Oftentimes, the reason why your friends won't accept the word of God or accept what you—if you go to them and say you're telling them—they need Jesus—and sometimes the reason they'll reject that is because they prefer to believe something else. They're depraved in their thinking. They desire something else. They don't like that. And that was the friend I talked about in college. One of the things she really struggled with was, "Oh, make makes you know—if this whole Jesus thing is right, that just sounds wrong to me, and I don't think that's fair for God to do that." That's a depraved mind. Because she the reason she's rejecting it is just because she doesn't like it. Okay? That's different than rejecting because she doesn't understand it. So the fourth reason is that they have a depraved mind. There's something wrong that's not working correctly. Now I don't mean that they have got mental illnesses or something physically wrong. What I mean is that something spiritually has just messed up their mind. It doesn't work the way it should. The fifth reason, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, says this. The natural man, that means the unsaved person, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. He can't understand them because they are spiritually appraised. So the fifth reason why we have trouble sometimes talking to unsaved people about these things is because they just sound foolish or stupid to them. You know? When we say things like, yeah, God loves us and offers us grace and mercy, and you have to accept Christ for salvation, they think that's just foolish. Sometimes it's because they just think it's better to work for salvation. It makes more sense to them. You know, in their jobs they have to earn things, in school they have to earn their grades. I should have to earn my salvation, right? It's foolish. That's just a stupid religion. (laughs) What's interesting is I oftentimes find people that I got an uncle that's really involved with some cult type stuff. He just loves he's always posting it. Well I'll be real frank, guys. This is not arrogant, I don't think I'm stupid. I don't think I'm the you know the brightest crayon in the box. But, man, when, when my uncle posts these posts from his spiritual advisor, the sentences don't make sense. Literally, I, do, I read it, and I go, I don't know what he's saying. But I look at all the posts, and all these people that follow him are all going, wow, that's the most profound thing I've ever seen, the most profound thing I've ever heard. It's gobbledygook. It literally is, because even the sent. I'm like, I, you can't put these two words in the same sentence. But He does. But when we say something spiritual that's from the scriptures, those same people will go, that's foolishness. It's foolish to them. The last thing, the last thing that makes it hard for them is found in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, and it's that they suppress the truth in unrighteousness, which means sometimes they hear the truth, and they just don't like the truth, and so they take that truth and they push that down. They reject it because they don't like it. They suppress the truth. And sometimes it's because they just like to keep doing what they do. In other words, when you approach somebody with the truth and maybe it convicts them of something they're doing and they know that it's wrong, they'd rather keep doing it so they take the truth and they push it down because it convicts them otherwise. So when I say that we can't really blame them, that's what I'm getting at. You have to have empathy and compassion for that, folks. Which means when we talk to people that are unsaved and we see how they struggle accepting the truth, we should recognize they're blind. Satan's at work. And so we have to have a certain amount of compassion for that. So the last thing we're going to do now is move on to how do we respond then? How do we actually respond? Let me give you some quick things. We're try to wrap this up in about five minutes here. First thing we have to do is remember that our ultimate goal, our ultimate goal is to see people come to know Jesus. The ultimate goal is not to simply get them to agree with us or to win the argument or to win the debate. One of the things that breaks my heart is when I see a saved person arguing with an unsaved person, and it becomes really clear that what they're really trying to do is to win the argument. Just convince them of something. It even breaks my heart when I see two Christians arguing or debating spiritual things or theology, and I see that one is really only interested in winning the argument, and so they're doing all kinds of stuff. Our ultimate goal is to see people come to know Jesus. When Peter says that we're supposed to be ready to give a defense of our faith, it's because the whole point is that we might be able to take the hope that we have in Jesus, and that they might see that and ultimately have the same hope we do. So the first thing we have to remember when we defend our faith is that it's all about leading people to Jesus. Not winning the argument. I could care less if an unsaved person believes in a young earth or not, folks. Why? Because it doesn't matter if he's not saved. We'll deal with that later. Okay? A lot of times we want to fix their wrong thinking before they ever get saved. No. I don't care what they believe before they're saved. I only care after they get saved. Because what I want them to do is to know Jesus. Jesus and the Holy Spirit will take care of the rest of it. So the first thing we remember... Is when we defend our faith. As we look at all nine topics over the next nine weeks, if a conversation comes up where you're dealing with that topic, first thing you gotta be thinking of in your mind is they need Jesus, and that's really why I want to share what I believe is because they need Jesus. All right, that's the first thing. The second thing is the focus should not be on defeating them or simply winning the argument. So you got those two, right? Third, is that we use the Bible as our starting point. That's critical. We love to argue science, and we love to argue all kinds of philosophical things. I don't really believe that it's the most efficient way to lead somebody to Christ by sort of coming up with all kinds of arguments, philosophical arguments. A lot of apologetics series, which is what this is, give you all these arguments you can use from science and history and archaeology to sort of prove the things to them. That's highly inefficient. It's highly inefficient. But you know the one thing the Word of God can do? According to Psalm chapter 19, the Word of God has the power to restore the soul, to make the simple-minded person wise. It has the ability to rejoice the heart. It has the ability to make their eyes enlightened so that they can see clearly. In other words, it breaks through the blindness that Satan has done. And so, what we're told in the Scriptures, and you'll see this in Psalm 19, it's in your notes, that the Word of God can cut right through All those six things we talked about before. The the Bible tells us that the Word of God creates faith. So the best chance we have when we defend our faith against those arguments, the best tool we have is the Word of God because it's like a two-edged sword. It cuts right through that. Now, some people will say, yeah, but the world doesn't accept it, so we can't use the word that way. And so when they argue with the world, they try to do it with other things, and they try to leave the word of God out because it offends people. I had a discussion with a pastor of a fairly large church one time. came right out and told me. I was challenging on his preaching because at times he wasn't, I don't think, doing a... a I think he was struggling... And and when I talked to him, he said, well, but you you can't lead with the Word. You have to butter people up. You have to sort of, you know, till the soil before you can ever get to the point of using the Word of God with him. And my response to him was, have you read Psalm 19? Only the Word of God can soften the heart. That's what it takes. Now, that doesn't mean you don't use other arguments, and that's the fourth point here. Use other arguments. Talk about history. Talk about how accurate the Bible is historically. Talk about how accurate the Bible is archaeologically. Go ahead and use some of those other arguments to support the Word of God. So use the Word of God as the primary tool in how you answer, which is why, as we go through this series, every week, the Knowing the Truth section will be the Word. What does it say? Now, how does that work itself out? We'll finish it up with this. I'm going to give you some examples here. Um, not so well I'll tell you what. We'll hold that off till next week. As we go through each one of the topics, what I'm going to do is I'm going to at the very end say, okay, what if somebody says this? How would you respond? And I've got some responses written up on a way that I might respond to that. And it uses the scriptures. Somebody might say something like, why do you believe gay marriage is wrong? Here's how you might answer it. So we'll do that. And we'll do some role-playing of, of sorts. Okay, next week. One last passage I want you to turn to. First Peter chapter 3. We'll wrap up on this. And again, I, I think I would encourage you Over the next few weeks, to try to memorize 1 Peter chapter 3. Because 1 Peter chapter 3 gives us a couple of things that we can, that will help shape our minds on this. We'll make four things, four notes out of this. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 14 through 15 says this. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 14 through 15 says this. But even if you should suffer for righteousness, you are blessed, and do not fear them. Or fear their intimidation, and do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. Yet with gentleness and reverence, keep a good conscience, so that in the thing which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. There are four things Peter tells us here. Make a note of these guys, okay? They'll help you to know how to respond. The first one is, we should always be courageous. Notice he says there, even if you suffer for it, You're blessed. Do not fear their intimidation, he says. So the first thing is, when we're talking to folks, be courageous. Don't be afraid to tell them the truth. Sometimes we get that way because we know that they're not going to like it and it might make us look really stupid or make us look unloving. But we need to be courageous. So don't be afraid to share the truth. The second one, always be ready. Peter says, always be ready to tell them about the hope that's within you. So be courageous. Be ready. Third thing, Verse 15, he says, with gentleness and reverence. We always need to be gentle. Sometimes we want to beat people over the head with the Bible. Just, you know. No, we need to be gentle. There's a gentle way to do it and an so gentle way. And the last one is we need to be consistent. Okay? You notice here that he says, keep a good conscience so that in the thing that they accuse you of and they revile you for your good behavior in Christ, you don't want to be put to shame, which means our walk and our talk ought to match. It's hard for you to try to share things with with other, whether it's Christians or unsaved world, if you're saying things about Jesus, but you're not acting like it. How we act is one of the biggest witnesses we have. And people have a tendency, even unsaved, to believe us more when they see us living our faith and living it out. They're less inclined to believe what you say about the word or about Jesus if you're not living like it.